Hi, it's Jake Johansson. You're listening to NewDissonantRadio.com. I'm going to listen now that I know where it is, NewDissonantRadio.com. If you can't spell that, just keep trying. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. That was uh, the Chandler Travis Philharmonic singing That's What She Said. As I've said before, uh, Chandler and his old partner, Steve Shook, uh, they used to be called Travis and Shook, used to open for my dad in the early 70s. And I was just thinking about it. I guess they open for me now. <laughs> Pretty cool. Uh, exciting news here at Waking from the American Dreamland. Uh, this podcast is now being featured every Friday 
on kpfk.org. This is uh, a, a local L.A. station that's part of the Pacifica Network. And the Pacifica Network uh, is a uh, radio network that's been around for over 50 years, maybe 60 years, since the 50s. And uh, the Carlin family has a long history with the Pacifica Network. In 1973, WBAI in New York played uh, my father's album, Occupation Fool, and some professional moralist was in the car with his 10-year-old son and decided to complain to the FCC uh, that the words shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits were coming through his car radio speakers. And the case ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court, FCC versus Pacifica Foundation. And uh, the Supreme Court, in a five to four ruling, ruled that the routine was indecent but not obscene. So those words were deemed indecent. And to this day, uh, that pretty much is the case. And if you work at a radio station or a television station, like Pacifica, terrestrial radio, uh, there's a little form that tells you uh, which of the Carlin words that you may have <laughs> spouted on the air and that the FCC will be slapping you with a big fine. So I'm absolutely thrilled, and I want to thank uh, Alan Minsky over there at uh, KPFK for uh, lining this up. And ne- tomorrow what we're going to do is we're going to start with not uh, this week's show. I'm actually going to start with an earlier show when I interviewed Gary Shandling, and we talked about Buddhism and politics and non-duality in the world. Uh, so if you haven't heard that one and want to go to their website and click on it, that would probably be great because then they will know, Hey, people are interested in waking from the American dream. So I'm very, very excited. So thank you all at KPFK for making that happen. Uh, also I'm really excited. Another announcement tomorrow is the official announcement of my one person show being at the just for laughs, um, Montreal comedy festival. I will be doing the actual show on July 28th. Uh, It's a daytime event at the festival. So, you know, if you happen to find yourself in Montreal that time of year, uh, swing on by and have a seat because uh, the show is taking shape, actually. Last night was the first night where I was like, oh, yes, things are making sense. And uh, my dear friend Paul Provenza is, is helping me with this piece and... God bless him. He just blew my mind on Tuesday and said a couple of words to me, and it changed everything. So I'm very excited about it. And uh, someone who was in my audience last night is actually my guest today, which is very exciting. She is a dear, has become a dear friend of mine, and we do a lot of gigs around town together. Uh, we dance like black people on the <laughs> dance floor. <laughs> We clap on the two and four. We do. We know how to clap on the two and four, even though I am white and she is Asian. Uh, This person, you know her as the host of the, like, number one rated for a gazillion years HGTV show, House Hunters, which is so funny because she's so straight on that. And she's so not that person. But she is, too, at the same time, which I love. She's also an actor, which recently she was on General Hospital playing the biggest, cuntiest wedding planner ever. It was I was like, oh, what a fun character to play. She's, of course, a stand-up comedian, an MC, a keynote speaker. I mean, she does, like, she gives sermons, which is very cool, uh, a big political activist, uh, a radio host in her own right, and a, and a published author, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten my book published yet. That's what it says on my business card. Published author, bitch. Bitch. Yeah. Uh, So um, here is my dear friend, Suzanne Wong. 
Hi, hey. Kelly. Where's the, there's no le- like clapping soundtrack? No, sorry. This is not. Da- oh, th- there we thank go. You. <laughs> thank was, you, Babs. That was Babs. Babs Roman is in the house today. <laughs> As is Suzanne's friend, uh, Jeff, who uh, is afraid to have, he might say something dirty. But we've already said dirty words, so it'd be okay. You actually, already said Jeff. the seven. I, I did. Words. That's true. It's done. It's done, people. Uh, so I, I wanted to start today with talking a little bit about, because last night after the show, we went to a dive bar and we were drinking and having fun and we were talking about racist, uh, comedians, uh, mm-hmm. racist jokes or, or are they racist or what, what's going on? And so I, I really wanted to start our conversation with, about your character, this alter ego yes. character you have, uh, Sung Hee Park. Very controversial. Yes. Very inflammatory. She is. And she is. she's, uh, she's very politically incorrect. Yes. And mm. and and so I I want to know like about what what kind of reactions have you gotten by doing her? Well, let me give you some context for how the character even began. Great, so you have a you know a way to put it in perspective because it's not like I just decided to go out on stage one day and tell racist <laughs> jokes, right? So um, I was studying at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, 2002, many years ago. And this is a place where they really encourage actors to write their own material and dare to fail and take risks and just really stretch yourself and grow. So I thought, um, and you know, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I've been skydiving, hang gliding, bungee jumping, rock climbing. I'll do anything once and I I want the life experience of it. Right. So uh, what happened was uh, there's an exercise called a personal monologue where it's an exercise for an actor to get on stage and tell an actual true you're nodding your head like you know what this is. Yes. It's, uh, tell a true story from your life. And in the telling of it, of a true story, people are so personal in the way they're communicating it. And then as an actor, you can sort of tap into, okay, what is going on with me emotionally and physically so that when I'm speaking someone else's words, mm-hmm. I can bring some, that, some of that authenticity to it. Right. So a, a woman gets on stage and she does a personal monologue about how she used to be a rockette in New York City and how... Uh, she thought that it was going to make her feel so fantastic like a superstar. But the problem is, when you're a Rockette, you're not supposed to stand out. <laughs> you don't get to be the unique superstar. The opposite you're of su- that. It's the opposite. So she literally went insane. Wow. She ended up in an, an asylum. And she was convinced that she was a vampire and that her vampire parents were Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine. And they were going to come rescue her from the asylum. And she's talking about how there was a fat lady wandering the halls singing. And she thought, oh, wow, it really is over. <laughs> And I thought that was one of the funniest lines I've ever heard in my life, right? So anyway, after she's done with this, the teacher says, you know, you should turn this into a stand-up comedy routine. And she's encouraged to turn it into a one-woman show. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute. I have funny stories from my life. What the fuck? I can do stand-up comedy, right? Right. I'm thinking, not that I was ever going to be doing that. I never thought I'd be doing that with my life. So I signed up to do stand-up comedy. Now, keep in mind that in this acting class, that would be considered the worst punishment of all to receive as an assignment from the teacher, (laughs) and I'm I'm volunteering, right? because that's typical me, big balls. I'm like, give me that. I want to do that. So I sign up, and I decide to write material about um, stupid shit people say to Asian women, because I I could write a book about that (laughs) from traveling the country. I used to be um, a field host on this morning show called Fox After Breakfast that Tom Bergeron emceed. Uh-huh. Many years ago in New York City, it was a national Fox show. Right. And I, I traveled, I've been to every state in the U.S. Wow. And I have collected a lot of material from things that people have said <laughs> And to people me. have been racist to you in every state in, in every the U.S. In every state, in every accent, in every dialect. <laughs> you know, for example, oh, you're Korean, do you know Kim? It's like, yeah, we're 
<laughs> best friends. Or, uh, oh, your English is so good. Wow. Thanks. I learned it in Virginia. Or asking me how the dry cleaning process works or how Maury Povich is doing. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, right? And so I basically got up there and, 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 relived or, or acted out these scenarios playing the different people saying the stupid things to me and then playing myself reacting. Right. And it went so well. I mean, it went so well. People were really laughing and I thought, uh-oh, it's that thing that you've <laughs> yes. heard people get. I got the bug now. Yep. This is what it feels like to get in front of people and they're laughing. And so the teacher said, okay, you're intelligent and you have a voice and you have to you have to start doing this in stand-up comedy clubs. And I thought, oh, no. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. No, this is just to cross it off my life list, having done it once. Right. And I'm not going to go somewhere where the people are strangers to me and they paid and they're drunk. And you really spell, you're like, you have to be funny now. Right. I'm like, no, I don't need mm. that pressure here. It's all my friends and they know that I'm on a journey. And, so, and they love you. Right. And they're laughing just because they like me. So forget <laughs> it, you know. And he said, no, I'm sorry. It's not an option. You actually have a responsibility when you have a voice that's mm. not being heard. You have a responsibility. And I was like, ugh. And then he says this. The only note I'll give you is that I would suggest that you try embracing the stereotype of Asian women that you hate so much. Hmm. And I said, excuse me? Hmm. And I was contorting in my chair. And I thought, I want to kill him now. And he used to be a good acting teacher until this moment. <laughs> now he's an idiot. <laughs> an so evil. I, he's an evil idiot. And I'm going to leave class. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking. And so I said, well, I'm sorry. I've spent my whole life proving to everyone that I'm nothing like that. What are you talking about? And he says, exactly. Whatever you resist persists. Uh, Whatever you fight against, you make real. You might think that you have this, but it has you. Mm. You are so violently opposed to it that it has you. Mm. He said, what would happen if you embraced it? It's such a parallel to what I'm going through now with my health, mm -hmm. interestingly enough. What, hap what would happen if you embraced it as part of your artistic palette? I'm not saying that this is all of who you are, but you, ca you cannot deny that you are Asian. Right. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> and so I, he said, just you know, try it and see, see what happens. So I'm sitting there and I'm having what is referred to at the Beverly Hills Playhouse as an organ reject. <laughs> he has said something to me. He's implanted it in my body and my body is like, get out. Yes. Get out of here, yes. right? You're making me ill. So I go home that night and I'm livid and I'm plotting his death and I go to sleep and I wake up and I'm like, fuck, I need to fully try his idea. It's insane to pay for a class yes. and then not even and try what it. the teacher says. It's like going to the doctor and the doctor says something and you're like, I'm not going to do that. And it's like, why did you come here to pay me for my opinion, right? By the so, way, is this Tambor? No, it's Richard Lawson. Okay, but right. Tambor would have said the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. As would have Milton Casellas yes. or Gary Hemoff because it's all Milton's teachings. Yes. So, um, so I was livid and I woke up and I'm like, oh God, now I have to do this. <laughs> now he was very vague. All he said was embrace the stereotype, right? right? And so I was like, uh, so because I didn't want to do it, I knew that it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen from the inside out the way American actors like to work from the inside yes. and get the feeling and then, and then that'll come out. I thought, I'm going to take a lesson from the British. Where they work from the outside in. Where they, if they have the right hat or the right <laughs> pair of shoes or the right cane, that gives them the yes, character. It, absolutely. It, it informs them from the outside in. So I went to Koreatown and I bought a hanbok, which is a full-length, formal, traditional Korean gown. It's beautiful, by the and way. And it's shiny pink. <laughs> and it covers up every part of your body because, God forbid, you could see a curve or a breast or a, a wrist or anything, right? So yes. it covers you up fully. It sort of looks like you're standing inside a bell. <laughs> Pretty right? much, yes. Pretty much. So I, I buy that. I buy um, a Korean fan, which looks like a large, multicolored lollipop, and these little Korean shoes, which are shaped like canoes, and they're rubber. <laughs> 
And they force you, the only way you can walk in them is to have your toes sort of curled at the front. And they make you walk in that really stilted, like, you know, tiny steps away so you can't run away from the oppressive Korean men. Right? It's like, oh. So, so anyway, I have the whole outfit on. And I'm standing in my living room wearing the outfit. Livid. Mm-hmm. Still livid. Mm. And then I'm just waiting for some sort of divine <laughs> intervention. I'm just, I'm literally just standing there. I'm standing there motionless like, well, now what? And luckily I'm not the most patient girl, but I decided to just stand there until something came to me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I get this. What if she were a stand-up comedian? Mm. What if she just got here from Korea? <laughs> What if she doesn't know what she's doing? What if she's, it's the first time she's ever done it. What if she's terrible? What if she actually has no concept of, of how to do a good stand-up comedy routine? And then I started studying good stand-up comedy routines, and I decided what would be the opposite of every rule of a good stand-up set, and then I would break every rule and become pretty much the antichrist of nice, stand-up comedians. Nice. So that would include telling jokes that I did not write. Old hack one-liners from like, you know, decades ago. It would include telling incredibly offensive, vulgar, racist jokes or dirty, filthy jokes, but I don't know what I'm saying. I have just learned these jokes phonetically and copied them down and I will say them. Because I've heard that they're funny. Right. And so I'm like, yay. Oh, and, wow. and I decided to craft it. Like in, in acting class, they talk about how you want to make sure that you've raised the stakes, that whatever's going on is really important. Because otherwise, why are we dramatizing it mm-hmm. in front of you? Mm-hmm. So I decided that if this set doesn't go well, Sunghee Park, which is my character's name, will go home and kill herself. Mm. Right? So this has to go well. Mm. And if it doesn't go well, she could also burst into hysterical tears on stage. All of which you please do not do on stage, <laughs> right? If you're a comedian. Another thing is you're supposed to run out on stage with a lot of energy and confidence and start talking immediately. And she creeps onto the stage shaking and and there's silence while she's trying to set up the furniture. The setup of the furniture, just, Suzanne, is, is – I was laughing so hard at that because it's so fucking goofy – Awkward. Yes, excruciating. Beautiful physical comedy, though. Beautiful. (laughs) And I realize that the longer that I take before I speak, the more tension that I create in the room. Yes. Because I can see people are thinking, how can I leave this comedy club without her noticing? (laughs) Because this is going to be so awful. People are looking at each other with this look of like, oh my God, what What are we going to do? Right? And then... Uh, that is directly correlated with the size of the laugh once I speak. Mm-hmm. Like the longer I wait, mm-hmm. the bigger the laugh mm-hmm. because there's so much tension. It's like r- going up a roller coaster. Yes. And the higher it is and the longer it takes, the bigger the thrill is once you drop. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that's basically how wow. the character was born. And I and I um, did it. In, you know, I, I think it took like a week for me to create this. And I went back to acting class. And I did it. And I thought it went well the first time. Right. Oh my God, people were losing their minds. People were falling out of their chairs like your father made Johnny Carson fall out of his chair. People were crying, holding their sides. Mm. And I thought, okay, look what's just happened. In my willingness to embrace the very thing that Mm. I was spending all of my energy resisting and Mm. being furious about, Mm. um, it brought me the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I, I entered the Las Vegas Comedy Festival not long after I created this character and I won Best Up-and-Coming Comedian and I won a trophy, Jesus. which for a valedictorian like me who never got a trophy for anything because I was never a jock, we don't get trophies for straight A's. 
You just get like, oh, good for you, you bitch, right? Right. And so I, now I have a trophy Neat. for that. And then I entered the New York Comedy Festival's first annual Andy Kaufman Award. Uh, because the reason I entered that is because every time I would do this character, someone would come up to me at any comedy club, at least one person, and say, oh, my God, it's like Andy Kaufman yeah. is back from the dead. It's performance and art. If, and yeah. he is so happy right now. <laughs> because it's, it is sort of like performance art that I happen to do. In a comedy club. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's how it began. I won the Andy Kaufman wow. Award, which got me not only a trophy, but it got me $7,500 in nice. prize money and a guaranteed slot on Comedy Central's Premium Blend. Wow. And there we go. And we're off to the races. Wow. What? Just from one, one idea that I had and one critique note that I got from a teacher. And, you know, and by the way, just and willingness, like, because there are some students that would have left class. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're like, you're an asshole. Well, yeah, because I, I disagree. I was in Tambor's class a few you years know. ago, and people would look at him and say, fuck you, and get up and leave, yes. and we'd never see them again. Yes. And you would think, well, that's too bad, because it was actually a brilliant note yes, of course. that would break them through of the wall, course. finally. And I was up against a wall, and it was really <sighs> limiting beautiful. my ability to create. And of course, that is not the only thing that I do, but people really respond to it. And what I want to talk about, now that I've given you the context yeah. for it, so... Um, I used to be the person that was such the codependent people pleaser and running for mayor and it was very important that everybody like me and that I get along with everybody and that I don't make waves. And to, I, I have to, no idea what you're talking about. I've, I've never been like that. Right. Like and, to, you know, and thank God for 10 years of Al-Anon meetings and yes. my metaphysical path. Otherwise, I'd be dead, I think. Right. <laughs> so the fact that I have created a character that that is so controversial that people I've gotten I've gotten hate mail. Mm. I've had people get up into my face after a show or get up and walk out mm. during a show. And the fact that that's okay with me and that I embrace that because I want the dialogue. And plus, the art that excites me is art that people either love or hate, not art that people are indifferent to yes. or don't recall that painting exhibit or they don't recall, you know what I mean, that acting performance. It's yeah. like, I, you know, I want the ones that were really divisive because it sparks a dialogue. So... If people the, are willing to have the dialogue. Right. And here's what's interesting. Yeah. Most of the people that come to attack me, I'm I'm excited because I would like to have a dialogue, but they actually don't want to have a dialogue. They want to dump on me and then run away. Yeah. Because they're sort of, I'm their scapegoat for whatever they're mad about, just like road rage. But the point is that I'm, because tr- I was thinking, okay, I understand why uh, people could be offended if I'm poking fun. But the truth is I poke fun at every race, at racism, at my race. At gay people, at black people, at, you know, people, learning disabled people. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's like Don Rickles. It's equal opportunity offending. And the point is that it's satire. For me, where I'm coming from is a point of intention of shining a light on and making fun of racism, stereotypes, prejudice. Right? right, and coming from coming from within it, sort of like Norman Lear created All in the Family and Archie Bunker's character. I, I doubt that Norman Lear's intention was to get everyone to be more like Archie Bunker. <laughs> exactly. However, yeah, we fell in love with Archie Bunker, so we felt this sort of conflict of like, well, he's a real person, and he's got a heart, and he's misguided, and he's a bigot, but he it's all it's 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 more complicated than that. Yeah, and and and, I, and the other context of it is the cultural context that so the cu- culture creates bigots. Yes. You know, and, and that it's it's and we're able to step away from our culture and see the shaping that it does to our minds. Right. Then we then we can have an individual choice. I can either choose to belong and agree to that part of the culture and exactly. that point of view, or I can actually maybe think for myself and think, well, maybe that isn't 
a, a way to be. And that's and that is why, you know, it's it's OK, because it's like, oh, because we see clearly, oh, she's been and, and with your character, especially she's she's this is just her innocent. She's naive and innocent. That's the yes, difference. Yeah. One of the huge differences for me in what somebody else might do is I don't come out with malicious intent to harm. Right. That's not the point. The point is there's a character who's an immigrant who really wants to make people laugh. Yeah. That is her pure intention because she loves to laugh. She wants to make other people laugh. And one of the reasons why I think Borat was more successful than Bruno mm. is because Borat's character is really just naive and sweet and innocent yes. and really just trying to get along. Yeah. Where the Bruno character is really like an active asshole mm-hmm. who is aware mm-hmm. of what's going on and so there becomes a disconnect and one of the reasons why I think people really resonate with Sunghee Park when they do is because there's this element of an outcast a fish out of water, an immigrant somebody who's not quite understood someone who's just doing their best and someone who really has good intentions that's being not quite received <laughs> well and, and what another, like the underdog and another great angle on her is that since she's using this humor thinking that this is what Americans want to hear you're commenting about that people on the outside of Americans see how narrow-minded and close-minded we can be yes. and how and how short-sighted we are about seeing people who are different than us. And because she's just trying to fit in as an American. Right. And it's pretty sad. Right. So there's a lot of levels that it <laughs> it's, operates It's on. beautiful, yeah. But what I, what I think is really interesting is people, the people that accuse me of... Um, uh, having my goal be to perpetuate racism and make it worse <laughs> right. because I'm wearing a Korean dress and I'm doing, yes, I'm doing a Korean accent. But what I find really interesting is just the doing of a Korean accent in, a, in and of itself, some people would say that's racist. I'm thinking, what makes that racist? Because people do speak with accents from other countries in this culture, right? right? right. And so for me to pl- authentically play as an actor, authentically play a character who's an immigrant, I would have to do a Korean accent so and also when they say well she's so stereotypical and I'm thinking let's let's really break that down shall we the stereotypical Asian woman would not set foot in a comedy club (laughs) much less stand by herself on the stage being the one trying to make people laugh if she were to go into a club she'd be in the back hiding under a table Mm. hoping nobody knows that she's there Right, right right so that would be the stereotype she would be way too shy and way too submissive the sunky park character that I've created is brave. Yes. Even if she's shaking, she's out there doing it. And she has a temper. (laughs) She will lash out at people. She will (laughs) reprimand people if they're not laughing enough or laughing at the wrong time or laughing too much or whatever. And so what's interesting to me is the stereotype, one of the stereotypes of Asians is that they take themselves too seriously Mm. and they can't laugh at themselves. So sometimes I find, because there are certain Asian groups that are like, what you're doing is horrific Mm. and I object to it and I'm thinking your reaction to my act is more stereotypical (laughs) than my act is I mean wow that's great but I get it there is there is a wound I mean if you talk to black people about the word nigger I mean it's very complicated and there's there there is a wound that that I think people who want to remain victimized will continue to be offended and they're 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 sort of stabbing themselves in the wound over and over again by choosing to be offended by everything. Now, keep in mind, when I was in college, I was the opposite. Mm. I was like, everything that everyone said or did was racist against me. Someone would say, hi, Suzanne. And I'd be like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> you racist? And they go, excuse me? 
So well, I, I understand that point of view of being angry yeah. at everybody. And, and I, think it's, I think it's part of the process of evolution. You know, first in our culture and as individuals, maybe we're, we're, we're numb to our impact on each other. And then uh, a certain individual or section of society wakes up and, and their sensitivity is finally allowed to be spoken about, right. allowed to be declared. And, and they, they're asking all of us to pay a lot of attention to their wounding and their sensitivity because yes. we need to know our impact. Yes. But then there's another step there in is. all of our personal victimhood, needing to honor our wounds journey, which is, okay, that's done. And, yes. and the hard part about that is, is that in our culture, I don't know if it is done no. because the wound and there are people out there who will perpetuate uh, the wounding right. over and over again. But I'm being lumped into a category with somebody who wants to perpetuate the Abs- wounding, which, a- absolutely. Is, which is the antithesis right. of what my, my goal is. Well, and I think that's what's so complicated about postmodern thinking and art in general. It's that, you know, people can look at things and want to make you a black and you know fit into their black and white world Mm -hmm. and you're doing something very nuanced and certainly in this country (laughs) in 2011 you would think in the 21st century that nuance could be part of the human experience and satire i mean that's what paul provenza is all about satiristas it's it's satire is a very specific type and 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 satire is a very new i mean it's although it's very bold and black and white in some ways it's a very nuanced conversation you're having and there's no room for nuance anymore. Right. And when people come up to me, there have been people, I remember being in Las Vegas and a black woman came up to me after the show and she said, um, that was horrifying. And how dare you use the N word? And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, th- this is just not for me and, and I'm furious with you. And I said, okay, I, I, I hear you. I respect that. Can we talk about the fact that I- I'm also... Uh, it's not just black people. It's it's. I, I'm, I'm, my point is to make fun of all of it. It's all so absurd to me. Right. Racism against any any race. Right. Sexism. Yeah. You know any sort of class divisions. Yeah. All of it yeah. is, is so absurd to me. And I can't even finish the sentence. She's running mm. away. She doesn't want to. She actually doesn't. I don't know if, if she's scared to or she doesn't want to or she doesn't know what else she wants to say about it. She just wants to sort of yell at me and leave. And, and what I say, and I, and I continue to, to say this with conviction, is I am an, an open-minded human being. I am absolutely willing for somebody to come up to me, just like Richard Lawson says one thing to me and I change directions mm-hmm. in my art. Mm-hmm. I'm willing for one person to come up to me and say, Suzanne, here is why yes. this what you're doing is horrific and damaging and you know and come to me i am absolutely willing to go you know what that makes sense to me and come up with a different approach to right my 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 mission yeah yeah but that has not happened right yet usually people just are like and then they run away it's interesting the running away part it's it's almost like they don't know well i mean i i think about it it's like it's like you're you're locked into your own perspective and it, it's something about you know wanting to to, to be heard and, but not yes. really knowing how to actually listen yes and it, this is what's so important uh about what you just said for me is that sometimes people can get so attached to their opinions and their paradigms as their identity mm-hmm. oh absolutely and yeah. 
what's damaging about that is how could that be possible because your opinions change. Yeah. So if your opinions change and could change in five minutes, how could that be your identity? And one of the things through my journey with cancer is the whole thing with an oncologist has a paradigm and opinion. Mm -hmm. And if you say, actually, I am going to try something else or go a different way, certain oncologists, I have one right now who's awesome, but there are certain ones that have this egomaniacal, God-complex paradigm of of. If I disagree with you or try something else, it's the equivalent of me stabbing them mm -hmm. in the chest and killing them Truly. in the way that they respond to me with incredible, violent condescension or defensiveness or hostility. Yeah, well, you it, know what I mean? It, and it's, it's people and their opinions. And there's this great quote by Plato. He says, uh, time will change or even reverse some of your present opinions. Refrain, therefore, a while from calling yourself a judge of the highest matters. Mm -hmm. And I just love that because it's like, you don't know what you're going to think about this in two weeks. So do you really want to consider yourself a judge on high up on a throne who's ha who has it all figured out because believe me I don't claim to have it all figured out at all when it comes to spirituality with how to heal this cancer with how to solve racism in this country I'm just sort of trying some stuff out mm -hmm. you know yeah it's it's such a, a great point about learning how to have a flexible perspective or to at least acknowledge that when you're in an opinion that it is really only just a perspective and that there are probably as many perspectives as there are people on this planet right now. Right. I mean, you know, that's uh, uh, what that, uh, that damn, it just left my brain. That famous Japanese film where they tell the story from all the different perspectives. Rosh oh, Roshiman. 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 Yeah. And, 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 and it, you know, it's, and, uh, there's, a, there's a great, um, I wish I knew it too, an Einstein quote where he talks about how uh, a sign of the mature mind is one that can that can hold two opposing thoughts at the same time. Ooh, yeah, that's and, good. yeah, and and I think that's what is you know that that's what it allows for nuance, like we were saying earlier. Yeah, and I and I know for me when I started to learn that I could have a, as a life coach, which is something I do. Uh, one of the things I do with my clients all the time is is I help them to recognize that sometimes they are locked into a perspective about something in their life or an art project or creative process or whatever it is. And, they're, and it's like the air you breathe. You don't even know you're in the perspective until I say, you know, wow, that's an interesting perspective. And because they think it's the absolute truth. And it is the be all and end all and it will always be that way. Yeah. Yes. And, then I, and then I say, I know you've got this perspective and look, you know what, you can keep it if you want, but... Just for, you know, you're paying me for 30 minutes, just for the sake of argument and just some fun. Do you want to go visit a few other perspectives? And there's nothing more exciting for me to watch a person literally open their own mind up. And by the end of the half hour, I say to them, so, you know, so we've laid out about five different perspectives here. Um, you can go back to the original one if you want, which is absolutely fine. I have nothing attached to it. Mm -hmm. Or you can choose another one. Mm-hmm. And they're That's like, so sexy to me. Wow, <laughs> yeah. I can choose a perspective. Yes. It's 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 mind boggling and life changing when you can do that. It absolutely is. And I believe in the same way that Lenny Bruce used to get on stage and say, "Gook gook spick nigger chink chink dyke," and just just keep saying words over over and over without any context to right. them in order to desensitize people. That like they're just sounds. One of the things that I believe we give words power by banning them. Mm -hmm. If whatever you resist persists, mm -hmm. we're going to ban that. Don't say that word. Don't say that word. Don't say that word. And so what I started doing is overusing mm. specifically the word gook. Mm -hmm. 
I'm getting people to call me, what's up, my gook? And, you know, in the same <laughs> right. way that certain black people take the word nigger and they make a nigga, what's right. up, my and nigga, make and make it a term of endearment, right, right? Right. I wanted to overuse it and take the charge out of it for me. Mm-hmm. So now I... I, I incorporate it and I embrace it. Mm-hmm. I incorporate it and it doesn't have the power to hurt my feelings anymore. Now when I hear the word, it sounds funny right. to me. And, you know, that's one way to do things. Other people will say, no, the only way to get rid of the charge is to, erase it, is to the- erase it by banning it. But I'm telling you, when you ban everything, anything, like, um, like uh, Einstein said, you cannot solve a problem from the same energy or consciousness that created it. Right. So if you think that the word comes from a bad place of fight mm-hmm. and you're going to fight the word right then is that really going to well, solve it and we all know that you know all all it does is get pushed into the unconscious and then it becomes you know shadow power and then it comes out in leaky horrible ways exactly. i mean people wonder why why do these politicians always have these sex things and why do ministers always have sex? it's because it's like it's, it's cuz of celibacy is unnatural <laughs> let's start with that right and and because these people are not allowed to be human they're supposed to be you know some sort of perfect american family or something and, and that's so interesting to me because when I, I went to the rally to restore sanity in washington dc that john Stewart mm-hmm. created, which was such a moving experience. There were like a quarter of a million people there. And it was the most civil, smart, kind, uh, uneventful. Do you know what I mean? There was no screaming. There was no fighting. There was no violence. Right. But somebody, everyone brought their own their signs. Their silly signs. I remember and that. And one sign said, abstinence makes the church grow fondlers. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, that's beautiful. So brilliant. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, we have, we have some time here, but I want to, I wanted to just get into, since we're talking about perspective shift and, and that thing that you, you said earlier about how, you know, with, with, even in your creative process that, you know, you were resisting this thing and you actually embraced it. Yes. And it made all the difference. Yeah. So I I wanted to talk a little bit about this journey you're on here with, uh, and, and, and how did you phrase it so well? It's, you don't have cancer. You, you, what, I'm what? not fighting cancer. We're not fighting okay. cancer, right? So uh, it's been fascinating to me. First of all, I've only recently come out of the cancer closet. Yes. So for people who are thinking, "What the hell is she talking about?" Yes. Um, I recently did a press release and an NBC News story about the fact that I. Um, Right now, have stage four metastatic breast cancer, but it doesn't have me. Right. In other words. Right. So, and it's my third uh, recurrence in five years because I am an overachiever. <laughs> and um, they said only white women could get it. I'm like, you just watch me. Um, but anyway, I make jokes about it, and people are like, how can you make jokes about mm. it? And, and I've come full circle with, um, you know, I started out getting surgery, and I've tried everything from Western to Eastern to alternative treatments. I've traveled the world. I've spent every last dime. Have you tried I've Northern and Southern? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the next thing. I think so. <laughs> but I mean, uh, yeah, the, the point is that there. What, one of the things that I've noticed since starting to talk about it, first of all, is that so many people have it and don't talk about it. And yeah. I was one of them until recently, mm. as if there's some sort of... Uh, shame that I'm supposed to have about it. It's like a taboo topic, even in 2011. Yeah. That cancer is still a whispered word. I found out from one of my um, my lymphatic massage therapist at the oncology center. Mm-hmm. She said that she has clients who haven't told their parents or their children wow. who they live with. Wow. And I'm just thinking, I mean, the level 
of secrecy that somehow this is something bad that you've done. And I have to tell you, this is going to sound sick at first, but when I found out that Wayne Dyer has leukemia, I thought, yay. And people are like, what do you mean? Yay. And I, I mean, here's what I mean. I think Wayne Dyer is awesome. Yeah. And I don't think he's any less awesome just because I found out he has leukemia. And I don't think that he did something that he should be ashamed of. And that's why he got leukemia. And yet I wasn't affording myself the same perspective. Right. I was thinking I'm a failure. I have it three times in five years. I haven't cured myself. So I can't talk about it until I have, until it's all I've over. It, and then I'll tell everybody what I did. Right, right. And uh, somebody very close to me said, hey, uh, you know what? It's about the journey, right? Not the destination. And w- wouldn't people benefit from being with you on the journey and seeing you navigate your way through it because you have honesty and courage and you have humor. And it's sort of like I have a different, um, I'm a different poster child for stage four cancer because when people see me, I mean, from what I've done, I haven't lost my hair or whatever. And people say, I'm sorry, that's not what I thought you would look like Right, right. right now. And it's just about me realizing that Marianne Williamson is a friend of mine and she came to visit me and she wanted to give me some metaphysical homework because mm. she's like, I'm not your physician, but I could be your metaphysician, <laughs> I love that, yes. which is brilliant. Yes. And one of the things that she was saying is that cancer cells are rebel cells that are fighters and rebelling and they're, they're going to just set up their own camp their own way mm-hmm. and fuck everything else. I'm a rebel, I'm a fighter, and I'm going to set up my own cells how I want to set them up. Is there any way that you have felt like that in your life? And I laugh for about 15 <laughs> minutes. I'm like, oh, yes. And so she said... This is about letting down your dukes. Mm. This is not about fighting. This is about releasing the cancer. Mm. This is about basking in the present moment. This is about embracing your health, Mm -hmm. focusing on what you do want, not what you do not want. Mm -hmm. So embrace the health, release the cancer gently. It's all more gentle in energy. Release the cancer, embrace the health, bask in the present moment, be grateful and receive. I have gotten so much love and support from the people around me. One of the things that I talk about in the journey is that everyone that I thought was my friend is. Mm -hmm. This is what I found out. You find out what you're made out of and what the people around you are made out of. And what a beautiful, profound, miraculous experience to have all these people I mean, you two included, you and Babs and Jeff, who's sitting here, mm-hmm. have all been at my house <laughs> to help me. Right. And yeah. and you, even in spite of your own history with and fear of, I mean, I get it. It's yeah. very human to be angry, sad, afraid, and run. Yeah, yeah. And I have surrounded myself with people who are just, I'm going to heal largely in part by my willingness to stay still and I've been it's like I've been cracked open and I'm receiving all this love. And it's 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 such an interesting process because so many of us think so much smaller than who we really are and and how really connected we are to everyone else mm-hmm. and, and and so there's the part of us there's the perfectionist part of us is like well I'll get this done on my own so there's that yes, thing I got it right I got, I got I, it I, I, I'm good really, I'm gonna I'm gonna handle this I I'm can very this capable on, I don't want to impose on I don't anyone, burden anyone. Right. and and yet there's that also the other thing that really is like understanding what love is like love is a real abstract thing and and people jesus talked about it and buddha and ministers talk about it and metaphysicians like marianne talk about it and wayne dyer but it's a really actual entity and 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 i've seen you know we've done some benefits for you and i've seen you on stage receiving the love and i know you understand what i'm saying that love is now a visceral experience it's not an intellectual concept it is a visceral experience because i've known in my head that the people who love me love me i hear them say it yeah but there's i know i know but let's like i say that 
that I get the benefit of the miracle of, of experiencing what see, what sounds like eulogies that people would give about me while I'm alive. They're telling me now. Do you know what I mean? Yes. When they come to my house or at benefits and stuff, they, they just look at me and they the stuff that is said to me or the impact that I've had on them and the, the, people are ecstatic to come to my house and, yeah. and reciprocate. And, and make rice for you. I mean, really? <laughs> It's amazing. It, it is. And just to take it in and to realize that it is a miracle. Like I, I feel like Jimmy Stewart at the end of It's a Wonderful Life mm-hmm. where all the people are just showing up. <laughs> with all the money. Yep. With all the money. Yeah. And it's like that's what's happening with money literally <laughs> and energetically just yeah. with, with energy and support and and belief and faith and humor. And, and, uh, and you know, I, I used to think – how can I be uh, giving guest sermons and keynote speeches when I'm sick and broke? Because mm. this has wiped me out financially as well. Yeah. And I thought, well, no, that's a great inspiration. If you want to be sick and broke like me, <laughs> come and hear me talk, right? And I, I gave a keynote speech about this at UC Irvine for a women's conference. Mm. And people have said to me that they have never felt more inspired in their lives when I'm talking about what's happening with the cancer and what I'm choosing to do and how I'm navigating my way through it. And I'm turning it into, I'm, I'm speaking about it. I'm performing about it. I'm turning it into stand-up comedy material and, you know, a book and there's all kinds of stuff brewing and in the works to start talking about it. And once I start talking about it, it's amazing how it it doesn't even have to be about cancer. People started coming up to me saying, I have full blown AIDS. I don't talk about it ever. I don't tell anybody. Nobody knows. I had, I had three miscarriages. I've had Mm -hmm. two abortions. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I have lupus and I have stage four colon cancer and I I can't believe you're talking about it. And I'm going to start talking about it. I had somebody say to me, you know, I'm dealing with infertility with my husband and it, it is such a big secret and I'm so sick. Mm. We are only as sick as our secrets, right? I'm yep. so sick of keeping it a secret. I'm going to start talking about it. Wow. And it, I mean, that's sort of, yeah, that's huge. It, well, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's huge. And, and, and whether it's your art or your life, if you can stand up and be courageous and speak your truth, whatever and, it is, and whatever that is, and go into that area that feels impossibly uncomfortable, and yet <sighs> it is the pot of gold. It is. That's that's how you have the impact on yeah. each other. That's how we relate to each other. That's how we all learn that we're all human and we're all here for each other. And 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 I never, you know, it's funny. I I, I don't. I never say to my audience, hey, audience, try this out. But, but you know, there's something here about what you said about getting the eulogy while you're alive. And, and I actually did this as an exercise once. I ran a women's group, and I decided we were all going to do each other's eulogies. Wow. So that we could all receive the power and beauty of who we were. And so, out, you know, I just suggest going out there and go give your eulogies to the people you love or, or do an exercise of it. Get your yeah. women's group together, your men's group or your banana peeler group. I don't know what the fuck it is. But it's just the power of that, of actually telling some the story of how the other person has impacted you and how beautiful they are and the light that they bring into the world. Yes. My God, could you imagine if we all fucking walked Huge. around the planet and did this for each other? <laughs> right. And to stop... Please stop telling me to fight the fight and keep fighting and battling and fighting and battling. People impose that language on me every day. They say, fight it and battle it and fight it and battle it. And your dad said fighting for peace is like fucking for virginity. (laughs) And I feel exactly the same way about my health. I'm not going to fight for my health anymore. Beautiful. You know, Mother Teresa said that she would not attend an anti-war rally, but she would happily attend a pro-peace rally. I used to think it was the same thing, mm-hmm. and it really isn't. Yeah, it is. It's, it's all about the energy behind it. We have to uh, to uh, wrap up here today, and I, because I want to leave enough time for 
uh, uh, a premiere of a international fabulous premiere of actually a song that Suzanne has written <laughs> and performed. So I'm just going to thank everyone. Uh, thank, thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thank everyone on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you, Johnny Dam. Uh, thank you again, kpfk.org, for, for having me on. So the name of the song that Suzanne has written and performed is called Rectal Release. So in like 30 seconds, Suzanne, Mm -hmm. what context would you like to... Well, I just want you to know that I recently become a songwriter in Harriet Shock's songwriting class. She wrote Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady that was Helen Reddy's big hit. Um, She teaches people how to write songs. Yes. And this is a personal song. It's a cathartic (laughs) song. Uh, Thus the release. It's very important for your physical health to release anger. Yes. So this is an anger release. And for your emotional health, I compare emotional... Uh, well-being to needing to give yourself a spiritual colonic yes, once in a while. So yes. th- there's sort of some metaphorical things <laughs> happening in the song. It's inspired by a specific person, but it's dedicated to the many people who talk the talk, especially about religion and spirituality, but do not walk the walk. Mm, beautiful. So uh, with that, uh, you guys have a great week. And uh, this is Suzanne Wong's rectal release. You're a toxic dumb, you're full of shit You're a cock monkey, god junkie, hypocrite I can't believe it, you're gonna explode If you don't relieve your pathological load You can talk the talk, go to church all day But that one scraped the crusty chunks of bullshit away So brace yourself, sorry no lube As we see your fecal matter shooting through the glass tube Unlock your hole and save your soul Rectal release, rectal release You're a disgrace, oh what a waste Rectal release, rectal release I am not your master cleanse This is where the story ends So ask bag, leave me in peace Rectal release So shit the fuck up or else I pity the fool Who meets you at a bar and then you offer your stool You give it your best and talk about God She'll think your prince charming But you're such a damn fraud If only you could have been sorry If only you could have had balls If only you didn't have douchefuck Written on your rectal walls If only you'd begged for forgiveness The way that a real man would I still would have left your sorry ass But fuck it would have felt so good Unlock your hole and save your soul Rectal release, rectal release You're a disgrace, oh what a waste Rectal release, rectal release I am not your master cleanse This is where the story ends So ask back, leave me in peace Rectal release New Dissident Radio. New Dissident Radio. On the internet. Listen before it's illegal.